go to thecognitiverampage.com. Keep fueling the change. Help continue to allow this to happen. None of this would happen without you and your love and your support. Love you. The Cognitive Rampage, a scientific approach to self-discovery, change, and life optimization, is now available on Amazon. What I do in the book is I fuse the latest research from the cognitive, behavioral, social, environmental, and biological sciences. It's not just motivational fluff and wordplay. Now, I do talk about my own story, so there's some kind of inspiration in there, but I'm not just spinning words and hyping you up with motivational fluff. Whether you need a life change, simply enjoy self-exploration and optimization, want to discover new hidden passions, or reduce the life-altering effects of toil, anxiety, depression, all of those issues, this book is for you. This book is not a cookie-cutter method of steps to follow. You'll customize the scientific framework with your own personal beliefs to build your authentic change. That way you assimilate it faster. It's not just copying my beliefs and telling you step one, step two. These will come from your beliefs as how you extend and build the foundation upon this framework. You'll use this framework throughout your whole life, through every change, and through every age. These are not empty words of motivational spin. This book is an experience. The Cognitive Rampage is based in science and is built from your beliefs. It's a path to help you unleash your desired change. You can apply this method on your own with no harmful side effects. Welcome to the Cognitive Rampage podcast. Hope you're taking care of you. Hope you're living your Cognitive Rampage. You see my little phone screen there? I hope you saw that. I'm not trying to advertise that, to be honest with you. Uh, hope you're taking care of you, though. Oh, it has been a... Uh, Fun week and couple of three days for myself. Um, yeah, double checking we're live. We're good. Should be the signal. Yeah. <laughs> but says it. Says that we're live, you. <laughs> Just double checking. All I'm trying to do is make sure I can check the sound here, y'all, before I start going off. You never know. Sometimes Facebook lately has been uh, messing with me. It's been a little trippy lately. We went, uh, actually did a full Canacast episode. And uh, it wasn't recorded at all. So, oh, yeah. Looks like we got the good sound going. So, I think we can kind of take off on this. Uh, yeah, we uh, moved. We moved. And I am by the beach, people. It feels like a long time. Like, I've been trying to get here for a while. It's weird, man. Like, you know... My daddy used to tell me, and I honestly mean this, uh, my father gave me some advice a long time ago that stuck with me, actually, which was uh, find where you want to live, move there, and then find work. Well, I listened to the old man for a while, and I tell you, it feels like my whole life I have been hurrying to get somewhere, right? And... It's funny, most of the time in our lives, we hurry up to sit still. We hurry up to get into the car to sit still for a couple hours on a drive. We hurry up to make the reservation that we have so we can sit still at the restaurant. Uh, we hurry up to get still. We want to hurry up to move to some place maybe. But um, for me, it felt like I always, I say always, See, I, I guess I use my own words here, but it felt like it has felt like always, right? Perhaps uh, the irrational words that I use to uh, raise the urgency for myself, but you know, move into a place that I've, I've wanted to be, wanted to be by the beach for a long time. Got my surfboard back behind me, as you could see. Uh, but it's set up. I'm literally across the street from the beach. I've been there twice today, <laughs> but it just 
feels like, you know, so many people wait so long to go where they want to live. They wait for this retirement or they wait for something else to happen or uh, when this will happen. I hear that so much. And, you know, for me, I'm telling you, I'm a fan. Uh, I even posted on the Tribe of Change today. If you've commented on there, if you could be anywhere in the world, where would you be? And I want you to just think about a place that you wanted to live or would like to live and how fast you can go there. I mean, there's a great book called Vagabonding that you should pick up, too. Uh, it talks about not a, not traveling as a lifestyle, but different. Uh, I, I love the book myself. But, you know, why wait so long to go where you want to go, right? Uh, you know, once I sell the house, right, once I have this amount of money, once I, a lot of people try to find work first, right, and then go somewhere and move around with work most of their lives, you know, and I get that that happens, right? It's the world we live in and the, the jobs that we take, you know, and so don't think that I'm up here like some jackass just telling you to sell everything everything and go to that place, right? I get it. You have bills, you know, you got a job, you got health insurance or whatever. We can't just up and do that shit. I get it. Uh, but you can make a plan. You can make a plan to get there. This to move here to the beach was a plan that Patricia and I made something uh, I've dreamed about for five, six, seven years. Uh, I don't know, probably longer. Uh, but it's very interesting. We just got here like two days ago, three days ago. The place is all set up already. It feels more like home than any house. And uh, it's interesting to have that voice quiet in my head that uh, the bear, if you will, if uh, you've seen Legends of the Fall, right? And Tristan goes for his journey, right? He's trying to quiet the bear in his mind and his soul and his spirit. But it's like that's happened. Uh, and there's this voice I got real familiar with, or at least these few sentences I got real familiar with over my life that would tell me things, you know, uh, you know, you got to get to the beach. You got to move there. You know, you should be surfing daily. Uh, you know, you should be taking better care of yourself. You know, you need the sun. You know, you feel at home when you hit the waves of the salt water. You know that, you know, got to get there. And that's that voice, right? I, I made friends with that voice or that line, if you will. I know it's me. I'm not that crazy but maybe i am but the idea is that this bear that had been quieted that i had finally moved and am in this place and it just felt like life slowed down like i had arrived like i checked this shit off and so that that post on the tribe of change on facebook if you're not in that group ask to join the group there's a tons of wonderful moderators that'll uh vet you before you come in the group i used to say we don't but we do now uh, but that's why I posted that is to think about where you're at now and where you've always wanted to live or at least try. You know, I think uh, a good thing to do is to try the different places to live. You know, the mountains, the field, the country house, the city, uh, southwest, north, whatever the get get through it a little bit. Uh, but try those things, you know, not just uh, think about it, right? Just go there for a little bit, maybe move there for a year, uh, run around for a while, find something, but find where you want to live. Because I promise you, as I've said many times on my philosophy, the environment does give back. And wherever you're at, it's going to give back to you. The traffic, the people, uh, the attitudes of the neighbors, whatever that is, it's going to give back to you. Whether that's uh, pollution around or no, no green, no beauty that you can see each day or even birds you hear, you know, uh, Consider your environment, please, because uh, I, I've said it now that sure, genetics have a huge implication in our lives, but I believe the environment uh, it may win out in the nature versus nurture argument. I, I probably won't see that day, uh, but as we see the environment, we already know that environment can make genetic predispositions uh, be exposed. They can reveal themselves, but in the proper environment, even if you have genetic predispositions for things like alcoholism or whatever, uh, until the environment really pre uh, presents itself to be 
the right environment, uh, those predispositions can show. Uh, but it tells me that if it's the right environment, it can actually beat genetics, right? So think about your environment over time. You know, they cram in your mind, right, about what food you're eating over time, what, how much nutrition, what you put in your body over time, right? It's the long game in the environment and the nutrition world, right? For me, it's I look at nutrition environment as a long game, not so much the short game. Uh, is, you know, nutrition has a big impact in your life, sure, and it can change lives. It's so individual. You know, I, that's why I get a little pissed when everybody's telling everybody how to eat, what they should eat, be a vegetarian, don't be a vegetarian, be a meditarian, whatever the fuckitarian you're supposed to fucking be. But it's so individual that, you know, you eat what works for you because some people want to be jacked. I disagree with want to be big and jacked. Some people want to be like runners and run 24-7, right? I mean, it depends on what you want to look like, what you want to do, honestly, you know, whether you call that actual healthy or fit, that's on you. But, you know, uh, it, it just... It, just take heed of your environment. Look what's around you. Uh, look what you are exposed to every day, what your eyes and ears are exposed to every day, uh, what, what you go through on your way to work or even in the morning. You know, I'd encourage you to develop a morning routine, uh, not like this Tim Ferriss shit where I'm going to tell you what to do for the morning, uh, but I would tell you to develop your mor morning routine, something that wakes you up nicely. You know, uh, a lot of people want to sleep to that last alarm thing, uh, and sometimes that may work for you. You know, that's cool. Do your thing. Uh, but if you can get up before you leave the house, even in five, five minutes, fucking two minutes, just to sit down for a second, uh, and sip a coffee for a minute, chat with your loved one, just do that for you get the fuck out of the house. And before you take off, uh, and just dive right into the rat race, you know, uh, cause I promise you the rat race is, is going strong and people's minds are too far gone, uh, to quote, uh, tribal seed song. But, uh, you know, be careful, just be cognizant of the environment at least, right? You could do what you can do, uh, to change the environment. And look, everybody can tell you about being mindful, you know, even me, I tell you about your perception, how you can master your perception to control your environment. And this is true. You can, you can master your perception to help out with the environment, but eventually the environment is going to win. You can lie to yourself if you're in prison every day that you want to, but when you lay down at night or wake up, uh, you're in prison. That's going to hit you. So it's great that we can use some mental cognitive approaches to, you know, gear the environments that we may be in for a short period of time uh, or even over a long period of time, like your work environment and stuff. These can change. They help. But over time, pr trust me, the environment will give back. Uh, find that place, you know, find a flow state too. Stephen Kotler has been on the uh, podcast once or I've been on twice now. Uh, his latest book, Stealing Fire, he talked about, you know, finding six flow state things uh, that he tries to touch during the day. Uh, I, I don't, six is cool. I just tried to find as many to put me in flow. Today's been one of those days for me. I had a great work day. Uh, then Patricia and I shot down, took the dogs down to the beach, uh, walked down there, jumped Gracie in the water for a little bit, brought the dogs back, went back, flung Frisbee for an hour or so in and out of the water. That Frisbee, man, I'm telling you, she's beat up, man. It's so bad. I look like an abuser. It's so terrible. I'm walking around with Patricia. She's got bruises all over. And I'm like, I pro and I look like a douche guy anyway that may do something stupid like that. And so I'm like, no, I I didn't. I swear. It's it's really we play ultimate Frisbee. People are like, uh-huh, right. But, you know, so Frisbee is one of those things for, me, for her and I. Um, but we get into it. You know, we play pretty rough. But did that today and then uh, – Took a little grocery shopping, but made a nice little meal at the house. Now I'm getting a little cerebral flow state on on the cognitive rampage. Uh, doing this for me, 
you know, and going out. So try to find things, like I was saying, that put you in that flow. Micro flows, macro flows, find small things. Like she's uh, Patricia's painting over there now. It's a cool little, I think it's a, I think it's this really nice uh, night picture she took. We were walking the beach the other day. But, um, but find things that can find all those flow states for you and move in and out of those flow states. Surfing is a big thing for me. I, I can't wait to have back in my life fully now uh, that I'm across the street. But you know, that is a, a an amazing flow state to find. Steven uh, writes about that a lot in his book, uh, even The Rise of Superman, how it saved his life and Lyme disease and what he uh, went through. So find those flows. And look, what I write about in my book, a lot of people, have, you know, they've read the book. Uh, but if you've actually done the book, if you do it, because you got to it's an, a, an assessment it has four different assessments. And if you're working through the inventory, there's a reason I did that inventory from interest to uh, enthusiasm is because there's things you may not know that you can find flow in and may have just stayed away from them. So I encourage you in the ID inventory, which is interest to competence, competence to confidence, confidence moves to enthusiasm, that state we're looking for, right? That flow state is almost an enthusiastic state. And so you can, you can look, you can have to learn and build your way to the enthusiasm. So in the book, like that inventory, I tell you, find something that you're interested in just a little bit, just that's something, I don't know, I've been a little interested in it, right? How do you get competent in it, right? Is you study it, research it, ask a friend, whatever, but you go get experience, right? You create your own experiences to build that competence. Over time, you can become confident and you can be confident that, uh, hey, this is something that puts me in flow or at least confident, hey, that didn't work for me, right? In short-term, long-term pain, as long as I know, now I know it's better than not knowing, right? But it may move you to enthusiasm. You may find something just because you followed a little hint or scent of interest and put some time in and put some experience in and got a little competent in it. And after doing so, you may find flow there. You know, so find ways to tap into flow state, you know, throughout your day, uh, do it constantly, man. Uh, even if it's for a couple minutes, you know, I, I spit a little freestyle is what I do sometimes, but, um, the flow has, has done great for me Move into this environment. Uh, I, I, I just, I think it so much, so I'm obviously feeling it. Uh, but I feel a biological response being this close to the ocean, you know? And for some people, they hate the fucking ocean. You know, some people want to be in the mountains or whatever, whatever it is. Some people, it's New York City, whatever, you know, puts you in that place. But know what environment you want to, what, that you're around. But also know what in, that environment is giving back to you. Know what it's giving back to you from EMF, from stress. Because I promise you, man, you're picking up on other people's vibes. I know it sounds creepy and whatever, but if you've been around somebody that you know is just, I don't know, somebody right. You know, and you're around so many people in big groups and cities like that. I mean, maybe I'm just an old-fashioned Southern boy, man, but I just, uh, big groups of people make me nervous. <laughs> they make me nervous. It's just, you never know telling what a group of chimps are going to do, you know, giving the right thing. So, you know, it's, it's I, I'm just a fan. Like, I, I don't want to be that, that douche that's like, hey, you know, quit your job, move to wherever you want to do, do it. It sounds like that, but I mean, at least make a fucking plan. You know, at least set some, the plan will at least help you, you know, feel better even that you have a, a map to get there. Just after you lay out a map to get wherever environment you want to live in, you know, you may have to question your lifestyle, man. You may really have to question how much you buy, the, the size house you live in, the car you drive. You may have to make, you know, changes to, to make to that place. But, you know, fuck the acquisition you know, go to the environment, but at least lay down, lay out a plan. Cause sometimes when you lay out a plan to get somewhere and you look at it, you may see that plan and go, fuck, I thought it was eight years. I could do it in four. 
And then watch that four year will be a year or two after that. It won't be long. And you can really trim it down. You know, visit the place if you have to for a lot. You know, just don't look at don't don't make it the place that you go once a year for two weeks. You know, I mean, if it's the place you can't wait and you bust your ass 60 hours a week all year to go to this place for a month or two weeks and you well, why would you fucking live there? Well, there's no job. There's no work. We can't find a job. It's expensive. Somebody works at a restaurant there that ain't making much money that lives somewhere in some place. So, I mean, we can find some way to do it. Again, pick up that book, Vagabonding. It's a really cool uh, journey down it. Um, I, I type it in for a while. But that stuff throws me off if I searched it. But you can search it, that Vagabonding book. But just get to that environment. Get to the place that, that makes you feel good, that makes you want to be outside, that makes you, you know, maybe the place you go every Saturday or Sunday. You know, think about it for a minute. You know, I get it, right? You own a house or you can't do this. There's so much to do. I get it. I get that. But remember, a lot of this system is structured to make you feel like once you've got established and got these roots that you can't leave. They make you feel like that. There's so many steps, right? You got to move and you got to get your stuff. That's, again, why I'm a supporter of being, I'm as minimalist as minimalist as I can be. I don't know if I'd qualify myself as one. Um, but it's it's truthfully just trying to have just what I need, nothing more than that. And when you have that, that enables you to move, you know, to be free from things. Even if you own a house, there's so many ways ways, you know, rent the house out, find a family member to rent it. I know it comes with all this other stuff, you know, but just get to where, get to the place that makes you breathe good. Get to the place that makes you want to have fun. It makes you want to be a kid again. You know, it, it's funny the looks Patricia and I get when we're walking with a Frisbee. We walked by a couple the other day on the uh, the uh, beach. I don't want to give it away, but on the dog park beach up there, a couple walked by the Frisbee. I'm like, we're not the only ones. I knew it, right? There's more fellow Frisbeers, right? You know, you get these looks, but just be a kid again. Find the thing to play. You find that through flow. You find that in the outdoors for me, but just find any way you can uh, and get to where you want to live, you know? Because this leads into the first thing, because that wasn't on my topic, but uh, our, our mental health issues, embracing our mental health issues. This is what I meant by embracing our mental health issues in a nutshell, if you will, in the summary is... We spend so much time trying to numb out, forget, mindfulness, distraction, all of these things that we try to come up with, discover, read about, learn, to get rid of, to numb out, to block out the anxiety, the depression, the sadness, whatever it is that we feel. You know, a lot of people take the pharmacology route and they're taking pills to numb themselves out is what ends up happening over time. Uh, whatever it is we're doing, right, we, we, we fight the depression and anxiety, someone would tell you, right? Go at it, embrace it, whatever it is, right? Um, what I'm trying to talk about by embracing it is, my, let me see if I can give you a little metaphoric story, right? Do you remember when car alarms first came out? I mean, I do. I, I put one of those Viper alarms on my 89 GMC truck. Um, and <laughs> it, right, they were always a pain in the ass. They were a, a son of a bitch to wire, but you put them in, you do, 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 and you'd hear them, right? And for a short period of time or an era, when a car alarm went off, people paid attention. They cared. They listen. They're like, oh, shit. Hey, my alarm's going off, right? Uh, we should call someone or is everybody okay? Right? You hear a car alarm now. All you do is start timing that shit for how long that person's got to turn that thing off or you lose it, right? You get, beep, beep, beep. Oh, idiot, man. Look at who has a car alarm. These days, right? So that's what I mean about mental health. What if your anxiety and your depression is your alarm? It's something going, get us the fuck out of here. It's telling you something is wrong. 
What if it's telling you your environment is bad? What if it's, what if it's your radar? What if whatever you're feeling, what we call depression and anxiety, and don't, I'm going to try not to go down the issues with diagnoses and labeling ourselves as being those rather than being affected by those things, although we do need them because they do help us study what those are, like stress, you know, depression, anxiety. If we know what they are, we can group those symptoms. We can better study them. I'm for that. I get it, right? So, but as we uh, assign those labels to ourselves, and if we're not willing to, if we just say, oh, no, I am depressed, right? We don't say I am headache, right? But I'm depressed now. I suffer from anxiety. These are, well, what if my alarm is going off? What if you're just not looking at your life? What if you're not paying attention to what your body and mind are screaming at you? What if it's saying change jobs or, or you're not really happy in this relationship or uh, someone's not valuing you or you're out of shape or you're going to die young? What if something is happening? What if your behavior and your thoughts, what if what is happening and, and transpiring in your environment, like I spoke about before, what if all this is going down, but truly what we've been gifted with is our mental health alarms that we call anxiety or depression, things that we feel, sadness, right? We look at happiness, right? You go to a place and go, hey, this really makes me happy here, right? We, we use the emotion to gauge where we are in that environment when it's joyful and happy, but yet when we're in a place, we just... I'm just, I, I'm just, I'm depressed. You are the depression, right? Other than, well, why am I feeling depressed? Well, perhaps I haven't taken care of myself this week. Perhaps I haven't trained properly. Perhaps something that used to put you in flow, you don't do anymore. What if this is a simple hobby that you used to have that, well, got too expensive or your time got too scarce? And you've just slowly pricked things out of your life a little at a time and you don't notice it, right? See, a lot of times we don't notice the environment till it's just upon us. It just slowly creeps in. We, we let go one day and well, next weekend and we'll do it next time. And then before we know it, it's just our environment's just been built around us by our own inaction, our own choice, our own inability to recognize it. And so then we numb it out with pills or we go talk to counselors. What I get these ideas can be good for you, right? No, no shouts, no, no issues to counselors. But my point is you're not paying attention. What if that's it? At least entertain it for a second. Because the reason I wanted to open with going to the environment that you want to live in and wish you could be in, I like to correlate those two because just the way you see that environment you may want to be in, maybe in the environment you're saying you can't get out of. So for the same the same excuses you continue to may build for yourself of why you can't be in the environment you want to be in or where you want to live may also be correlating to the same reasons you may be experiencing depression and anxiety because of the environment. But then we roll excuses to those to say, well, I can't because it's uh, it's too difficult. The schools, my job, the money, my stuff. We can't afford that area. There's no work. Right. Excuses that we use that may, well, have kept us from moving where we wanted to be anyway. So we continue to make those excuses, perhaps for our anxiety and depression. It's just me. Well, I, well, I, I did go through some things. This is happening. Well, I've, I've been battling this most of my life. Think of the, think of the rationalizations that we apply to the mental health issues that we're experiencing rather than embracing them, saying, holy shit, I'm not paying attention. But my body is still experiencing the environment. My mind is still in the environment. Whether you're aware of it or not, you're still in it. You may have even built amazing coping skills for the environment you're in. Again, 
kudos to be able being able to master the uh, perception of the environment to master the environment but again that's only good for a short period of time eventually the environment is going to win you can convince yourself you're not thirsty for very long but eventually you will die of dehydration this is my point you can't think away these things right we have to have action behavior we have to approach it on all fronts so the idea of, of thinking, well, I can't really move to that place yet. You know, I, I'm trying to get there. You know, after this, when the kids are grown, right? Now, you don't know if you're going to live next week. But yet we make a plan so we feel more comfortable, right? And rather than taking the action to move to that place, to just go there, right? To just take a chance and, and, and just buck the system, right? Rather than make excuses for why we must experience the environment we're in, I refer to must by masturbation is what's that called. I must be here. I must pay the bills. I must have this job. We must be in the school system. I must have a four-bedroom. I must drive a newer car. I must, I must, I must, I must, I must. Masturbation, as Albert Ellis would refer to it, right? But we continue with those. But do we use that same masturbation for our anxiety and our depression? Do we say, well, it must be this. Well, it must just be who I am. It just, it, it, it must be something I can't, it must just be me. Rather than look at the environment, what is influencing you? What have you taken out? Remember when you were a kid, that's what I love to write about, right? I loved writing that part because I thought about myself as a child or, or that child that spins around that you saw last, right? That just doesn't give a fuck. The kid's just looking at his hand for an hour doing spinnies. He's just like, Whoa. Life is awesome, right? Where is that curiosity and wonderment? Where did it go? How were you like when you were that age? Where did you want to be around? What did you want to do? You know, you just work. You're like, what? No, okay, I'll hurry up and do the chores or do what I got to do to get there. Think about those things. Think about the child. Think about your child. The child you still are, really. The play. That's This is how we start to ask ourselves why, right? What's the child's favorite question? Question why? Why am I here? Why am I doing this job? Why haven't I gone to where I want to live? Why am I not there? And then question those repeats that come back. And if you're dealing with anxiety, depression, any of these things that may be setting off in your mind of some kind, right? Embrace it maybe. Don't run from it. Don't numb out the anxiety. Don't numb out the depression. And maybe don't even just distract yourself, right? A lot of people, hey, just stay busy. Just stay busy, right? Stay busy is the cure for fucking everything. Stay busy is the cure for breakups. Stay busy is the cure for depression. Stay busy is the cure for everything, right? Just fucking stay busy and take the pills the doctor gave you, right? Stay on your med. This, I mean, this is it. This is the mental health they're handing us, right? But maybe embrace it. Don't numb it out. Go, holy shit, I'm feeling anxiety right now. More than likely, I'm thinking it. What are the thoughts that are fueling it? Maybe I should run at those thoughts, confront those thoughts. You know, Barry McDonough was a great, wrote a great book called Dare. It's about anxiety. Listen to that podcast when he was on it. It did wonders for myself even as I was experiencing my divorce and my change of life of what I was going through anxiety was coming at me and I loved Barry's approach I really did that approach was something different find those ways but go at it why am I depressed I'm depressed well see what pops out man buy my fucking book please read that shit apply that shit it will help you I don't think it will I know it will when you apply it for real when you work and you're willing to question become the child of your life question analyze don't just condemn and make statements of right and find a way move to that find the child in yourself man i promise man you don't know if you're going to make it next week or tomorrow even you don't fucking know right i mean so you gotta move go to the places that make you happy surround yourself with the people what i've found when i come to an environment like the beach where i want to live or in the islands where i love to be or even in nature I, well, I find I'm, well, sort of uh, indirectly surrounded by well, people like me. 
I find it funny. I mean, it's almost scientific, really, if you think about it. If you take the array of the species that we are and what we develop into, given our experiences and our environment, our genetics, how many people, and if they crave for a certain area, if they crave for the beach, if they crave for the mountains, if they crave for the city, and you do too, well, there may be a reason. You all may be on the same vibe, if you will, as my boy Truth would say, right? You may have that. So maybe there's a reason that there's a group of you that like to do this or move here. You'll find the people when you find the environment you want to be in and you go there and you're in it and you live in that and find a way because really that's what life is about, right? Is finding the place we want to nestle up to, not a place that, well, we can. We could afford a house here, so this is where we went to. If I told you you had one shot at life or if your kid came to you and said, well, this is what I want to do, but this is what I can do, would you tell your kid to do what they can do or would you tell them to do what they got to do to do what they want to do? You see, we'll dish out that advice as parents, but we'll be damned if we'll take it. We'd rather be the ones making excuses about why we can't live that way and live through our children as opposed to taking our own advice we give our fucking children. We'll give out that advice, right? No, son, no, daughter. You need to follow what you love to do, and no matter what it takes, put in the work and do that. Well, I hear you, son or daughter. You can, well, you only can do that. This is, well, you can't do, right? So you're right. Stay away from what you can't do. Is that what you tell your kid? Stay away from what you can't do. You're right. You're making a lot of rational, you know, rational arguments here, son. So uh, just do that. No, you would tell them differently, wouldn't you? You would tell them, no, go for your dream. Whatever you got to do to make it happen. Reach out to the support you got to. Make the changes, right? But yet you would tell them that, but we won't do that. And then when they get older and they do the same things we do, we wonder why they're no different than us. Because they're modeling after you. What you do means more than what you say to your children, in case you didn't know. What you're saying to them matters for a little bit, and then it's gone. But what you do on a regular, your behavior on a constant, that is what influences them over time. This is how you find yourself in them later. So as if they develop... By modeling your behavior of what they find valuable, and maybe you wanted something bigger for them, maybe they wanted something bigger, but they've been modeling and learned from you from your behavior and what you're doing. So it won't be your kid's fault if they decide not to go for gold, but but be okay with silver. Because if the environment you're in is really bronze, or it's not even a meddling environment, then what, what are we doing? What are we indirectly really telling our children to do? Or is that when we make the excuse and go, yeah, but we got to be the martyr, patriarch, or matriarch, and we sacrifice our own lives for that? That's what we have to rationalize. We have to rationalize our shit environments we've allowed to, to build around us and entrap us and cage us in a life. We have to rationalize those because we're different than our children. Because, that well, our life's just different. I mean, I wouldn't tell my kid that. No, I wouldn't tell them to live that way. But we're special. We're different. We're the martyrs. We have to sacrifice for that when really I could be teaching them different. I get it. It's fucking hard. You may turn me off right now and say, fuck this guy. But again, I used to say as a therapist when I was one, if my patient or client did not say fuck you once a week, I was not doing my job. So if you're sitting there saying fuck you, Adam, perhaps maybe we've made some headway. But learn to embrace that mental health issue instead of run from it or numb from it. The trauma that we experience, the subjective trauma that we experience there is what this when they start clicking off and I call your trauma subjective. That what trauma? I mean, trauma is trauma is compared to what? The perception that you've been sold what life is supposed to be. I watched the animal planet, motherfucker. Life ain't fair. 
I know if you've seen them gazelles, but them little baby gazelles ain't got a chance, and that shit just ain't fair. Well, life kind of operates that way with us, too. doesn't care whether you can run or walk. It treats us all the same. But if we believe the construct we've been sold, that life is this pretty picture-perfect thing, and it goes awry, and it goes array, and we're like, oh, shit. Oh, no, it's not perfect. We don't know what to do. Embrace the mental health issues. Maybe it's just your alarm saying, get us the fuck out of here. And we got to pay attention to them, yeah? We got to. I got, I got all cognitive rampage. Yeah, I, I, I hype myself up, man. I walked into this all fucking chill. Then I get to talking and I think about it. Even excuses I made to myself, man. Excuses that went through my own head about why I couldn't get to the beach sooner. Why I couldn't be here. Five years, I told you I've been trying to get here, man. So don't think I'm up on some pulpit up here preaching the shit. It took me five years just to try to really get to this place as I was all over the place, right? So, I mean, I'm just telling you, hey, get to that place that actually has an effect on you. All things being equal. People love to say that cliche line. All things being equal, you know, there's, there's a nice person, you know, they're they're pretty cool. All things being equal. We run across that and say, all things being equal, right? You know, Patricia asked me a question the other day, which is pretty cool. I want you to think about. Let's take a question. If you could trade lives with anybody right now, who would it be? Would you trade lives? Maybe you wouldn't. You see, when you're actually given the choice, right? When you're put there, when when the, the, the life trader beam is put to your head, do you trade lives? Do you take the youth? Do you take the money? Do you take the fame? Do you take the talent? Do you take the looks? What do you take? Do you even trade? You may say, oh, hell no, because you don't know what you get, right? It may look like something, but you don't know what else you inherit, and you know what I'm saying? You don't know what else is coming with that shit, right? I'm going to take the safe bet and stay with self, right? At least I felt that way, right? When she asked the question, right? When you think about that, right? So I like to think about this, what I mean by all things being equal perhaps you've played a video game once in your life or at least seen a video game once in your life and one of those video games where they have multiple characters where you can pick a whether it's a fighting game or a journey game whatever they well, some quest game where you got multiple characters that you can pick right and they either have an arsenal of weapons that's different or certain tools or, or skills right so imagine when you're picking that character in the game right you're or maybe even a, a fighter in the ufc game or a boxing game or something right whatever it could be or even the team you play madden with whatever it is right i haven't played a video game in fucking years y'all so just forgive me um but Imagine you're looking, right? Why do you pick the team or the fighter, the character you pick? Because it looks like you, right? Have a lot of power, a lot of agility, right? And, and the smarts. So imagine for a second, if you will, you know, what that meter looks like on every human being, right? We all got certain traits that come in this video game of life that we experience, that we all need. Intelligence, a sense of humor, compassion, empathy, vulnerability. Add them all across the board, whatever that may be, right? And think about it. Think about those things that we need. Are, are we all equal? Maybe we're just all equal in some fashion, right? I don't like the idea of saying everybody's got a gift, right? Because the idea that everybody's got a gift is subjective to what others may see as a gift. Others may see a waste of time. What others, you know, deem being a waste of time is a gift to someone else, right? So I don't like the subjective notion of going, everyone's got a gift. They just have to find it. 
Because then you got millennials walking around thinking that they're the next gift to YouTube, and that's just their star moment waiting to be discovered, right? And you got these irrational notions that we're all uh, giant stars and millionaires waiting to be it, or just diamonds undiscovered, right? This puts an irrational uh, idea in our mind. Um, but the idea that all things being equal, right? Well, you already said you may not trade places with somebody, or, or would you? And then think about the person you would trade plays with if you chose to and say why. Because they have more of what than you. They've had more of mm, than you. They get to do this than you. right? And so look at those things. Because I like to think we're all fucking equal. Because I think there's a whole bunch of categories we don't know about. And, you know, someone asked me the other day. I was talking about uh, the schizophrenia diagnosis. And someone asked me what I really thought about that diagnosis. And... I'll give you the left field what I thought about that diagnosis, to be honest, is uh, I have met some of the most amazing people that are diagnosed schizophrenic. Almost a wonderment to myself. Almost like they, I'm going to be honest, at, at times I, I kind of felt like they were a level above me, to be honest. There were times where I spoke with them, I'm kind of like, I felt like a peasant to them mentally almost, as if they were to another level. There was a guy that I'm going to call John uh, that I remember very, very well. Um, that was down at a, a clinic I used to work at a lot. And he was homeless by choice for 15-something years. Uh, we'd camp out, uh, long dready, if you will, and uh, diagnosed full-on schizophrenic and uh, multiple uh, voices, uh, multiple uh, delusions and um, audit auditory and, and visual. Uh, but the level to which John would talk at sometimes and would write at even uh, w would be a level of understanding that perhaps would mean nothing, maybe reading it now, but maybe a thousand years from now, it could mean something different. And we do have a history of a society as deeming whatever is different from us as being bad or being wrong or being a disorder, even uh, that if the mass majority um, come to think of it, what I meant to say on another podcast, remember delusions also look up the definition of a delusion. The delusion actually brings in the idea of the majority, that if the majority doesn't see it, it's labeled this delusion. Well, we call people with schizophrenia because they experience auditory and visual hallucinations, right? They see things and hear things that aren't there, at least to us as a mass or the uh, general whole. So we call those delusions, right? Or they're having visual or auditory hallucinations. Now, the difference here, obviously, is the audio that you may hear when you thought you heard something may come from what, come from in your head, but their audio that they're hearing comes from over there. And that voice they hear is from over there, not with inside, as you can imagine. So, um, you know, all things being equal, as I scroll off there, um, before I walk down how I'm just unique and amazing so many schizophrenic people I've met uh, are, um, what if there's just so many categories we don't know exist in this video game yet? Imagine a thousand years from now, what we used to be able to do 200 years ago, 500 years ago, add a thousand to that. What's the human going to be able to develop to do, right? So I, I look at the spectrum, you know, of going, man, what if we all just all are, are equal? And it's perspective. When you think about, would you trade lives with someone? Would you trade lives with anybody? And if the answer is no, there's probably a reason there. Ask yourself, why wouldn't you? Well, but for me is I don't know what I'm risking taking on of theirs, right? I can't see their whole hand really, only the uh, persona perhaps or what I know. Uh, so do you, do you take the blind door, the empty mystery box that comes with the life change? Uh, or do you keep the one that you know now, right? Uh, 
it's just something to consider, something I pondered, you know. Perhaps all things are equal. And when you find yourself feeling like shit, not worthy, uh, not as good, maybe you compare yourself indirectly and accidentally, we are human, this happens. Uh, you find yourself maybe not measuring up to even yourself as yourself as being the worst or harshest critic on your life. Uh, perhaps all things are equal before you maybe think about trading lives or wishing you were somebody else or even more tragically ending your own life before you get to that. Well, imagine you're a character in the video game of life like everybody else. And for the most part, somebody may appear or have a persona to have more things than you or some other um, category of human uh, development or the human experience. But, well, they're probably holding a few that you can't see either. And perhaps all things are equal and there's no need to say all things being equal before we say anything that perhaps maybe all things are equal except maybe that environment you are living in now that you really don't want to be in you know the whole things that aren't equal i can tell you are well unhealthy or healthy attachments uh you can look up john paget uh, a, a brilliant man who studied uh, childhood development for a long time. He has some multiple stages. Uh, over time, if you ask me, the childhood development stages that Piaget has, has come up with, uh, I, I think are pretty valid. I think they're pretty close. Uh, there's so many theories out there for childhood development, certain stages, but uh, I, I like his stages. I think if you have children, you should know those stages. Um, also, uh, looking up the biological stages, the implication uh, on brain development and biological development uh, when exposed to trauma or high intensive or hyper intensive environments, uh, such as arguments between uh, uh, adults or yourself when your kids are present. Uh, look up those implications on uh on childhood development. And uh, he talks a lot about attachment and unhealthy attachment. Uh, he talks um, about you, a small experiment you can do with your child during the one to four period where you can set your child in, in one room, uh, the mother would in one room, and then walk out of the other room. And then you time how long your child takes to respond to you. Right. Some would think that the child is OK being left in the other room for an extended period of time, that they don't cry and respond would be healthy. Uh, that actually would be considered an unhealthy attachment. Uh, the fact, though, that you can't leave the room for two seconds uh, or even for a second with your without your child losing their mind. Uh, this also is an unhealthy attachment, that the healthy attachment is really the middle ground. Imagine that is the idea that your child can be placed in a different in, uh, in a different room. You can leave the room for a minute or so uh, before the baby is either wandering to find you, which is a, a healthy thing if the baby is wandering to find you, but not clamoring to find you, not freaking out, uh, crying or watching you. Right? Try to set the try try to set your child down facing away from you uh, as you leave the room uh, and see the response and observe it and watch that attachment. Um, too many times, I have to be honest, I hear parents uh, with uh, children of a range of ages and certain development, um, well, <laughs> it really sounds like bargaining with their children um, as opposed or negotiating with a two-year-old or saying, well, we'll give you this toy. It's bigger. Put that one down. We have one in the car already. They become negotiation tactics uh, as opposed to just making the, the decision and the child then has to live with the decision. Um, that is a much easier route and will make your life shorter, if you will, uh, as opposed to just worrying about the crying reaction in public or uh, the tantrum 
the child may have. But remember, um, it's not the child. It is the parents. Just like I say, uh, if you want to uh, see the dog, see the owner. See the children, see the parents. We're so quick to yell at the children and attack them, but we forget that their development is being observed from those that are rearing them. So as parents, again, I'm coming back to what I talked about, the environment. They are observing you and what you choose to do in your life. What you choose to do, they don't understand the difference of choosing or have to. You may in your own mind. So they observe you and then hear you, you have to, and all you do is maybe talk to them about where you want to be or about how great it used to be or about where you want to go. See, they are observing your behavior and they learn through that. And so the unhealthy and healthy attachments can come from observing you. If we're on them 24-7, cut the cord, someone may say. Um, there are certain research that's out for preschool, some that aren't. Some There's a lot of pro-research for uh, a parent, if not both, being home as often as the child can from one to four. After four years old, it's different. Uh, there's also a, a huge misconception uh, out there, a huge, huge misconception by so many parents uh, that you have to provide roots, if you will, that you purchase the home to develop this great home. So kids have the home to come back to when they get older. This is the idea of so many parents is to uh, allow to have roots. And I'm actually telling you, this is actually not an optimal behavior or optimal environment, um, or let me say, uh, perhaps if not optimal, uh, I would tell you, uh, not going to make the most high-performing child. Actually, tons of research has come out that the more high-performing children actually come from families that move around a lot. Now, the difference here, or the control, if you will, uh, was these families where the child performed better in development, uh, better on grades, creativity, and everything else, um, social interaction and everything, performed better and all off the charts better, uh, is the home life was stable. It was not a hyper-intensive environment. Um, it wasn't about financially stable because they actually found no correlation to money. They found no correlation in positive development to money, only in low socioeconomic status as it relates to education. That's where you find the difference in development. So the education provided for the child during development actually has an influence over time for sure in the beginning. Um, so the education environment the child is around. So now looking at children that travel and have multiple homes during their development, if that home life is stable and it is healthy and is education environment is a healthy environment that the, uh, the family's not moving because it's out of work, out of work or lost their home or foreclosed on, that their stressors happening, that divorce is happening, new jobs. These are different. This is a different way. Moving around, this becomes stressful moves, not moves that are, well, a couple or a parent that's wanting to experience the world, that's showing the travel, showing people exist outside of the small world. So, so many parents that have a child get so bent out of shape and so anxious and, and so nervous that if they can't provide this home, uh, that, well, uh, they're going to not be able to provide the optimal environment for their child and they beat themselves up. And this is wrong. Again, this is something the social constructs have sold you, have sold you that they want you to buy a house, stay in the same place. It shows that roots are good. I would tell you more than likely you're just trying to fulfill a childhood you never had that you wish you had for your child, thinking that would be optimal for them because you never had it. And science tells you differently. Science would tell you that homeschooled actually and properly homeschooled and free free homeschooled, meaning uh, creativity and music, these things are brought in. The child will advance even further than the 
terrible, terrible public school system. So the terrible public school system is the uh, joker, if you will. And so being in the public school system and where socioeconomic implications matter, where it's paid to teachers or resources to the schools matter, 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 matter. This matters because if that's the environment a child is exposed to, obviously they're exposed to it longer than even their home life with you. This is going to have a detrimental implication. But traveling with the child is different. It really is different. So it's okay to question the idea that you have to build this home to have roots, that the child has to feel this or they need to feel stable. What they need is to observe a stable relationship. And if you're a single parent, what they need to observe is a stable parental unit, one that is happy if the most part follows what they dream about doing, does not find themselves confined or unhappy or exposing themselves constantly to an environment they don't wish to be in because the child will repeat that. Okay, mom, dad exposes themselves to the environment they don't wish to be in so they can have these toys and things, then I will repeat that. When truthfully, you may want your child to actually just be happy and live where they want to live more than you want them to have stuff, right? But be careful as they repeat and follow your own behavior. And then you wonder why they're just like us. See? So the unhealthy attachment uh, and healthy attachment can be built in so many various ways. It doesn't come necessarily with the social narrative that they tell you is the healthy attachment, that you're the stay-at-home mom and dad 24-7, that you're so attentive to the child. Look, Bill Burr, I love you. I think you're the best comedian of all time. Let me just be honest. Bill Burr is the best comedian of all time. Uh, I'm, George Carlin is right there with you, the priors, of course. But if I had to put a vote in, I'm sorry, Bill Burr's killing. But Bill Burr, you bother me, man. You bother me because what you love to do is to watch the hockey games. You love to watch the games. And you're not watching the games anymore, and your fans are, are missing where you're talking about the games and stuff and your take on it, even though it's hilarious and a joke and, and all bullshit aside. But your excuse continually is, well, we got the kid now. That's what you say. I got the kid now. I can't watch the game. Well, this isn't good. You're teaching your kid to sacrifice the things that you love for responsibilities or things rather than maybe share those. Share those experiences with the people you love, right? You don't have to cut them out or sacrifice because you start to teach them, hey, once you have a kid, throw away your own life. So would you want your own child, once they're married, to throw away their own life? Would you want your own child to marry someone that asked them to throw away all the things they love to do? Would you tell them to tell their kids that? See, we have to question the hard things. The unhealthy and healthy attachments can develop rather quickly. And if you look up again Piaget's developmental stages, you may see. And he gives you all kinds of things to look into to almost test it, if you will. But being there 24-7, let him touch the stove. It's going to be okay. Let them fall. Research actually shows the more you allow your child to fall, the better they perform over time. See, if you protect them from everything and anything that could possibly happen to them, every bacteria, if you're wiping their hands down 24-7, you wonder why your kid's sick all the time. Well, duh. It's your hand sanitizer that you're showering the kid in every five minutes. The kid is not allowed to develop anything resistance to the bacteria. Let them outside barefoot fucking please. Let them be okay. Let them develop the bacteria. Let them get in contact with these things. This will make your child stronger. Please, please. It's our own human future. The unhealthy attachment can develop in multiple ways. It can develop uh, by being gone all the time, and the babysitter in preschool and a nanny raises your child, right? But, well, hey, I provide a life for them, so this is the sacrifice we make. Well, not if it harms our child. 
If not being around harms our child and development of it, then we can't make these excuses. We're doing that for self. We have to be willing to make lifestyle and environmental changes in order to actually provide the optimal environment for our children as they grow and develop. We can't make excuses for the environment that we, well, expose ourselves to. Because, look, the family is only as strong as the weakest link. And if you're not taking care of yourself, well, then the family is only as strong as you are. So if you're not doing the things that put you in flow, if you're not living in the environment that makes you joyful and happy, well, I promise you, you're infecting your family. Maybe the person in your family wants to be in a different environment or do something else. And if, well, if you're not attentive to that, then I promise that person you may label as sick or toxic, well, is really just hurting. And their alarm is going off and maybe they need some empathy and some attention and sympathy for it because, again, the family is only as strong as the weakest link. And if you're the martyr, if you're the martyr or the patriarch or the matriarch that sacrifices 60 hours of your life for these things, well, we have to question that because that in turn is actually hurting our family more. We have to question those. These are, diff these are difficult things to question, especially in a society that makes it so difficult to live differently or even question it. But the unhealthy attachment can come from being attached too much, attached too often, too attentive and placating to the child, as George Carlin would say it, um, the spoiling of the child, right? The, um, I think he called it, uh, oh, I can't remember. Somebody's probably saying it right now, but uh, where, oh, child worship is what he called it, is the child worship will create an unhealthy attachment that the child will expect to be worshipped, if you will, idolized, and will be enabled most of their life, and will make decisions when they get older that will flat out, well, floor you. You will go, how in the hell could they do that? We have to pay attention as parents to our healthier, unhealthy attachments. What we allow to grow and what environment is allowing the growth and or destruction of those healthy or unhealthy attachments. You see, if you were born into that unhealthy attachment or reared in that unhealthy attachment, maybe your parents were gone a lot, maybe you never got, well, you're okay. You see, people don't realize, parents do not realize, and fathers, uh, I'm just leaning toward you a lot, especially when it comes to sports and your children uh, or grades or anything else, is they don't realize how much of that a boy or that a girl or you did really well goes a long ways. Now, I'm not telling you when your 12-year-old paints a green dog to tell you, hey, that's all right. Okay, if it's creative, it's cool, but you know what I'm saying here. But what I'm telling you, it's okay. Because truthfully, a healthy attachment, an unhealthy attachment can definitely be created when there is not enough positive reinforcement from the parental units. When positive reinforcement is not there, the child then questions themselves most of life of going, how do I measure up? Am I okay? And they begin to seek acceptance, group acceptance generally first. This may be you. It could be your child now. And so when they don't have that, hey, you're all right here, they're looking for that justification from mom or from dad to say, hey, you're all right human. You've done it. I acknowledge you. I see you. You're smart. You're going to be okay. It's funny how you're going to be okay goes a long way with our children when you tell them that. You see, if you're not positively reinforcing with your children, you spend most of your time criticizing, critiquing, and telling what, to, what they can do better and how if they just listen to your smart ass, they could do it a whole lot better. Well, then you're creating an unhealthy attachment within your own child to where the, the child will not feel attached to yourself, the family circle, and will have difficulty attaching socially.
when the child does not receive the positive reinforcement. I'm not talking overboard because, again, we can create the unhealthy attachment by going overboard with it, that you're great at everything. And then the child develops a narcissistic complex that basically says, I'm good at anything I do and anything I touch. Just look at me. And we don't want to go that far either. So you have to find that balance, right? Whatever that subjective idea of balance is again, right? So the unhealthy attachment can come when we're not served with that positive reinforcement of you simply belong and you can be heard. If you're raised in a family, a large family, a lot of times people raised in large families, they're not heard. And they're okay with just kind of being part of the mist, right? Disappearing into the trees is one of the leaves. And really what they're seeking is to be heard. You'll find people from large families that are actually very loud and flamboyant, but can shapeshift. They can be chameleons anywhere. But the truth is they're just trying to be heard. And some from big families, well, they can blend really well. They know how to do it and just kind of, well, be beige and just kind of go into the wall. So we have to be careful, even ourselves, as we expose ourselves and what we then become attached to as we get older, right? So I obviously was raised in an unhealthy attachment, as you know, you hear me transparently keep jumping in and out of my own life. Um, so the idea of, you know, the unhealthy attachment when positive reinforcement wasn't there, positive justification, family, when you're, when the child's not accepted to the family circle, uh, again, the social circle is hard to then attach to. And what we start to do is look for things to fill that hole or to make that attachment, right? So imagine this fuse that we have, right? As we're developing through Paget's developmental stages. As we're coming through those stages, this fuse gets built, gets installed, and gets plugged in and begins to work. And let's call this fuse the healthy attachment fuse. Now, is this fuse, well, is plugged in and built up? Or maybe it never even got as far to where they even started constructing your healthy attachment fuse. So as we get older, we need that attachment somewhere, that social connection, right? So as we don't have that or that belonging, we'll make shift fuses that come through addiction, that come through other things that we do that become unhealthy attachments to our lives. And we begin to fill this unhealthy attachment hole that never quite got attached as we were developing with so many other things. So to find our belonging, to find our connectedness. This is what the child or your child will begin to do as they begin to develop. And if there is a attachment, they will find things to attach themselves to, to fill up that hole, to close it. But here's the problem. You can't. You can't fix an unhealthy attachment once it's been created through the development of your child or yourself. But at least with awareness of the attachment issues we suffer from and what can happen when we're not filling or haven't filled that attachment hole, how we start to behave, what we start to do, and with that awareness comes change. So it's not this inevitable outcome of when you don't have a healthy connection or a healthy attachment as a child to one of the or both parents that we're just inevitably fucked. It's not that. But the idea that this healthy attachment, this belongingness is going to be difficult because the inner circle belongingness, if you will, the circle of trust, as De Niro would refer to in the movie, right? That circle of trust we never quite belonged to, right? So we find other things to attach to, or our children will. And when that attachment isn't served, well, it's whatever's on the buffet that's willing to attach to us, be that boyfriends, girlfriends, habits, circles, 
and behaviors, whether that's ourselves or our children. And we can fill those voids, and we'll try it. We'll fill it with so many things. We'll fill it with any kind of attachment, any kind of belief schema that plays into a lifestyle that we want to live. We have to be cognizant of whether we have, are building, or are destructing our healthy or unhealthy attachments with ourselves, with our environments, with our children, with our lives, with our own parents, with our spouses, with our partners, with our coworkers, we have to, with our job, with our home even, with your dog. Hell, start with your dog. Whatever attachments, we have to microscope those, look at those. See if those attachments are healthy or unhealthy. But again, what you come up with is still going to be theoretical and subjective. But at least we can be aware. Can I have a refill, Patricia, of the uh, go fuel? <laughs> um, sorry for the interruption there. I can't wait to see that painting. I bet it's badass. <laughs> she's getting up that way i bet i was badass don't you call me hey thank you mason yeah uh check out mason baptiste has been on the podcast too y'all uh he was talking uh we brought him on and um go ahead and got the other one yeah thanks is it full you good yeah um yeah mason came on the podcast um i forget which number you are brother i've done a bunch of man it's like 205 now uh, but we talked a lot he was a uh pro hockey player for a long time he's into it uh, we talked a lot about his experience with athletes, athletes depression, which I, I find funny, man. You gave me the George Carlin quote here. Uh, absolutely money, right? Uh, it, it is child worship. You, you certainly see it. Now I can hear everybody screaming at me, right? About 10 parents signed off of watching live once I started saying it anyway, because uh, you start knocking on their cognitive dissonance front door. Uh, <laughs> But that child worship, you really see it, man. And uh, I just kind of shake my head. I, I I was in a CVS the other day, and they were bargaining. Like I said, bargaining with this child about, you know, the toy's bigger in the car. I'll get you another one. I'm like, how about you just say no, and you put it down, and you walk away? And no? Okay. But I can hear him telling you, well, when you have your kid, that's funny. When you have your kid, you'll know, right? When I have a daughter, man. Well, she's adopted. It's not the same. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> seriously mason um athletes depression is the last topic uh on this here so excuse me for a second mm, wonderful beautiful little sativa there uh shout out presidential kush uh big love to the cannabis cowboy <clears throat> well athletes depression the uh, scribble scratch in my mind and the outlines that we've been putting together uh, are all right. <laughs> They're a little different. Um, I have to say that I am probably closer to saying it's definitely a diagnosis 100% of the way, um, but trying to actually find the research to back that up and prove it uh, rather than just word of mouth or patient self-report or people we've talked to report. Um, I'm actually going to take the book down a different route um, when I do really sit down to grind this thing out. Uh, Nick Lienfelter is still on board, too, to co-author this book with me. Um, I really want to take this book a different direction. You know, The Cognitive Rampage is uh, its kind of an intense read. <laughs> Maybe The Cognitive Rampage, as the title gave it away. Uh, but it's an intense read. It's a difficult read. It's only 180 pages. But if you really do the work and process it, it takes a while to work the philosophy, the inventory, to process your own core beliefs. Uh, but that book was coming from uh, a real psychological 
um, biological, physical, um, neurological aspect. I had to do a lot of research with that. I mean, it's based in my theory, transrational structure behavior theory. So a lot of research had to go beyond, go into writing that book. And because it's a self-optimization, life improvement, self-help application uh, that's rooted in science, uh, it had to be meticulous. I had to plot out why this first, why this second, why work on this third. So uh, I had to write that. It was a difficult read. It was a, or it was a difficult write for me. Uh, I think it was 10 of my lives, if not 10 years of my life, uh, writing that book and then writing the second edition, uh, basically a book a year. So Athlete's Depression, I'm going to take a different route. Uh, I'm going to write this book more as a journalist uh, with a background in mental health uh, because it's almost investigative for myself. And uh, we have a couple of athletes lined up I'm looking forward to talking to as, as this book comes together, uh, as the outline comes together. And really, as I, I want to be able to provide not just the pointing out of something, but potential solutions. And so uh, there's certain athletes that I've watched that I know have experienced the idea of athletes' depression or the, this disorder that I know has been di misdiagnosed for nearly 10 to 15 years. Uh, I know there are numerous athletes out there uh, that have gone through the ringer of misdiagnosis. Uh, and to inform you uh, briefly, I've talked about it a lot, but generally the cycle of misdiagnosis over uh, along the time period, um, generally 10 years or so, um, it goes like this. It generally starts out as depression, tends to be the first diagnosis. After depression, the second diagnosis is ADHD or ADD. Uh, these two diagnoses sometimes flip as being the first or second. Uh, but these are the generally the first misdiagnosis within the first uh, one to three years, possibly going into the fifth year. And due, due to a lot of detail, I'm not going to cover now. Um, eventually, the third misdiagnosis that generally comes after about five or ten years ends up being a, the bipolar diagnosis. And that's because they, um, the athlete looks like they're going through manic phases. But the truth is um, mania is not being looked at or manic is not truly being looked at properly, if you ask me, by mental health professionals, especially your physician, um, is not really looking at those symptoms for really what mania and manic is. And I think themselves as being practitioners are even confusing and, and forgetting uh, what the symptomology really is of bipolar, uh, not just happy and sad. So many people are, are misled or, or don't get it. They think that bipolar means you're happy and then you're sad. And this is totally not the fucking diagnosis. Not, not only is it very rare, um, happy and sadness is not how it works. Uh, mania is the counterpart, the buy, if you will, in the polar, that severe depression that comes with uh, thoughts, if not plans of suicide uh, for two weeks to six months, but it has to have be earmarked by mania and manic phases that are two weeks to six months in length. And manic uh, is a, a serious, serious symptomology of bipolar. It doesn't mean happy. Uh, or overly happy. It can become godlike and dangerous. We make terrible, terrible sexual choices, risky sexual choices, risky physical choices, um, and, and irrational choices. You'll decide to paint your house purple at 3 a.m., do so, start at halfway, and then realize you have to fly to Vegas for this very important meeting that you haven't set up. This becomes manic. This is mania. So people that you think are bipolar just because they're happy one day and then sad the next day, stop it. 
You're 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 spreading terrible misinformation. Uh, please be informed. And th- th- this is serious. And so the last diagnosis, generally in this cycle of five to ten years, even longer, of misdiagnosis and mistreatment of these athletes becomes this bipolar diagnosis, which is so rare. There's really only about 300 people in all of the state of Florida that actually have bipolar, but there's really about 5,000 that have been given that diagnosis. Because, mind you, this comes with a disability. Check. So when you're diagnosed bipolar, you now can sign up for disability and, and, oh, God, it goes down so many bad roads. And so I've talked about numerous times on the podcast about the actual etiology uh, or how athletes' depression manifests itself and how it becomes, well, how it reveals itself, right, how it becomes present, right? The etiology of it simply refers to how it develops the onset of it over time. And it's the overtime aspect that is very crucial to the athlete's depression. It's not this two or three year experience. I would venture to say that if you're feeling depression uh, at the end of maybe playing a sport or something like this, this is more along the lines of an adjustment disorder in its early years and it's six months and it's early year or six months, somewhere around there. This is an adjustment disorder, which is one that used to be my favorite diagnosis. I always had to give one um, if for people to be treated and insurance to pay. So the lightest diagnosis, if you will, was this so-called adjustment disorder. Um, So an adjustment disorder, you're adjusting to anything in your life, lost a job, relationship, whatever. So it may be that light, but really it's the over time, it's the five, ten years that where the athlete's depression really begins to show itself as being that, and it's generally encompassed with misdiagnosis. Now, it doesn't have to be all three. It could be very well just be the one. And the separation that you get from so many people is the difference between uh, depression and or major depressive disorder and what athletes' depression would set apart. And I would talk about the major depressive disorder and the major separation, if you will, excuse the pun, from major depressive disorder and the major separation from athletes' depression is earmarked by the experience of the depression itself by the athlete. And then the counter reaction to try to combat this depression by the athlete itself. These choices, these responses tend to be much more intense and over the top as, as, as a response to the feelings or the symptoms of depression, if you will. And these symptoms and responses begin to what look like the bipolar behavior over time, hence the misdiagnosis, but also the earmarking difference between the major depressive disorder and some Someone that is an athlete experiencing depression. So athletes' depression, giving the etiology over time, five to ten years of its development, encompassed with a misdiagnosis, one or two over time, has then onset into what looks or appears to be manic behavior, but is not fully mania or manic whatsoever, uh, but, is, but is essentially a little gladiator, was raised. And to reference, the reason I want to talk about athletes' depression on this was because of talking about PJ's, PJ's child development stages. If you look at the typical child development stages and you really investigate these child development stages that a typical child goes through that Jean Puget was researching back then, this childhood development, this environment, it knew nothing of the regimen of sports training that some of these high-performance 13-year-olds experience and go through. It is outrageous. It is so different. They become, uh, they're, they're, they're just 
robots, working machines at young ages, right? So these environments, they existed, but in working fields and environments you didn't see much of in his era of study. And later as he got older, sure. But the intense sport environments that a 9-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old, these are during the developmental stages, okay? So the implication and a difference, again, the earmark between a major depressive disorder and athlete's depression is, is keynoted in the development of the athlete and the athlete's development through childhood. So if we look at the beginning stages of Piaget's um, theory of their development, and then the second stage, the third stage, right, early adulthood, adolescence, if we move through those stages and we look at the brain development, what is concreting? What schemas, what brain synopsis, what observations, what behavior, what is being observed as then downloading as being what life is to the person? So a 12-year-old that has lived in the world of baseball their entire lives, eat, sleep, and lived it, then goes on later to maybe make it and my what my research and Nick's research has shown that it doesn't matter if you only have played high school for X amount of years and or played four years in the pros, that this this reaction is the same. That if you've lived it from a young age all the way up and it ends at high school or it ends at college or it ends in the pros or amateurs, wherever wherever it can end, any one of those, you have the same effect, right? That when this ends at a young age, it is much more detrimental to who that athlete believes themselves to be and the responses from it and the aftermaths from it. Thus, the responses to it, like suicide, become much more, well, prevalent. Crazy-sounding responses, behaviors, choices, things to do to try to combat that the athletes does that begins to look manic. So there are a few earmark separations I've laid out right here, just the difference from major depressive and the development of the child athlete, if you will, and I'm talking the intensive child athlete, um, that developmental stages and what's happening, then given how long they play and when that happens versus a, a, a typical child raised, whether bad, good environment, but not in a high-intense athlete environment may experience depression later that etiology the way that manifests given the childhood development and turns into major depressive is a stark difference in the symptomology as compared to athletes depression as is what i believe theoretically the treatment for it i believe i have i've not got here yet on my research but i believe as the book goes on the research as if we treat a athlete with depression or as if they have typical depression or depressive symptoms or disorders, major depressive disorder being one of those. If we treat a high-performance athlete as if they have that, that the regular diagnosis, the simple major depressive disorder diagnosis, we actually will do reverse harm, that you'll actually do worse. Well, I'll give you this. Go back to one of my early episodes. I interviewed, uh, uh, rest in peace now, he, he passed last year, uh, um, Dr. Brodsky, uh, Dr. Louis Brodsky, um, the, the man, uh, if you will, uh, on bipolar disorder. I interviewed him, I think it's like episode two of this, uh, or no, it's like, I don't know, four or five. I can't remember. It's not five. But anyway, uh, Dr. Brodsky, uh, we talked about um, briefly on there the treatments where he saw from a pharmacology standpoint for treating bipolar. But what happens if you give any depressants to someone that's actually a bipolar? If someone is actually diagnosed or, or being affected by bipolar and is treated with antidepressants, what actually happens is you have this god imaginary thing that happens, right? For the next, within 24 to 48 hours, this person will take an antidepressant and feel like they are God. Everything will be okay now. Life is going to be great. They can do anything. It's very scary. I've witnessed it many times, and it's very scary. And you go, holy shit, and you know 
it's actually more likely bipolar when you have that response because the crash comes a couple days later and it gets double the, of the depression of what it was. So uh, he talked, uh, we talked a lot about that bipolar depression, how you treat it, what the earmarks of it are, the, the effects of it. And, um, so the idea of I, I, and that's my point is if you treat bipolar like a depressive, you have a, a terrible response. So I believe that if you treat a athlete with the standard approach to depression, that you're going to actually have reverse outcomes. It may get better for a little bit. It may hold on for a little bit, but I think ultimate destruction comes after this. This, If standard treatment of a high-performance athlete who's experiencing depression or is being affected by depression is treated with the standardized treatment, I think over time you develop worse. This is when you do find that terrible bipolar diagnosis five years later. This is where you experience the heavy issues with addiction, violence, domestic violence, intensity. This is where you experience those issues because they're not getting better. They're doing the work, doing the stuff, and the thing's not getting better. So uh, I'm still researching it, but this one, I want to go into this book again like a journalist and walk in through this because it, it's a discovery world uh, for myself. It's new, um, and yeah, there's a lot to learn. But uh, so far, two of the hypotheses have come true. Um, as I get deeper into this, am I going to be able to separate athletes' depression uh, enough through criteria to make it different than major depressive disorder. And yes, I think uh, I'm certainly there. Um, and the idea that people that played sports, high intensive sports from a young age, um, will have a higher chance of experiencing keywords, severe mental health disturbances or disorders, be that addiction, violence, anger issues, depression. Um, I made a hypothesis uh, and Nick did some surveys, a little basic research. It means a whole lot of nothing, really. I get it. Uh, it's just kind of a little blip on the radar that kind of shows, well, what we're leaning toward may be right. Uh, that if your child or yourself played high intensity, high involve uh, competitive sports from a young age and played up through high school and or End, ended in or after high school or ended in college or further that you have a higher chance of being affected by severe mental health disorders. Those are two uh, hypotheses that are looking to be true. And the third one I'm posing now is that if we treat high performance athletes um, with the standard approach to depression, we are setting them up for tremendous failure over time, if not a more tragic failure uh, that I'm not even going to talk about. But that's where I'm at with Athletes Depression, y'all. Um, I've loved this podcast. It's been fun. Been a good mind state. I feel like uh, that flow state's kind of floating out of there. So, I don't know. feels good. feels good to end it. I hope you got something from it. Uh, please share, like, subscribe. We're on iTunes. Uh, if you have an Android, I think only like 2% of our listenership comes from Android. But if you do, hey, I'm not hating on you. If you do, you like it. We're on Stitcher. You can look that uh, that up. If you're in Europe or overseas, anywhere else listening to this, look up Podbean. You can find us on there. Um, but yeah, subscribe on iTunes. You can go to adamlowry.com, cognitiverampage.com. There's a whole bunch of cool stuff on the website, uh, cool videos. The old trailer popped today, which is cool. I saw it on Facebook, so I reshared it uh, from the first edition when I put that book out a while ago in uh, 420, 2016. Um, yeah, or 2015. I don't know, 16. Yeah, 16 I put that out. And 17 I put out uh, the second edition. But uh, a whole bunch of cool stuff on the website. I'm actually on Twitter, too. You can find Cognitive Rampage on Twitter or on Instagram. Uh, I share a bunch of stuff on Instagram about surfing. So if you like watching people drop off of big waves or drop into big waves or anything to do with nature or spear fishing or something like that, you're going to see a bunch of that kind of stuff on my Instagram. But uh, yeah.
Hope you're taking care of you. I hope you're living your uh, cognitive rampage. Love you.